You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Dr. Mike Brazier, and today we have a re-air of one of our species profiles. Brant is the species we're going to be talking about. This originally aired back in October of 2022 as two separate episodes, but the, the this conversation is timely again now here in early 2024, and so we have repackaged this as one single episode. We've trimmed a little bit of information from it, but we, we know it's still going to be very popular and very informative. So, Sit back, relax, grab a bag of popcorn if you'd like, and enjoy the episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We have another one of our Species Profile episodes today, and this one is pretty special from a personal standpoint because of a recent trip that I went on. Uh, We're recording this on October 27th, and just last week, just about five days ago, I returned from a week-long annual leave, vacation trip with some friends and colleagues to Cold Bay, Alaska, and... Anybody in this in the waterfowl world, when you mention Cold Bay, Alaska, one of the first things that will probably come to mind is Eisenbeck Lagoon, and then comes to mind Brant. And so that's going to be the topic of our discussion today. And we have joining us remotely, Dr. Mark Lindbergh has done a lot of research on this species over the years, much of his career. And uh, Mark, great to have you here. I was with you just last week, but it's good to see you again. Yeah, nice to see you, Mike. That was a blast last week. It was a it was a great trip, even for those of us that live in Alaska. That's a very special place to visit. I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about your research on Brant, and we can just kind of keep this brief. Talk about uh, some of the topics that you covered, and and how I guess how much of your time in Alaska intersected with Brant. Yeah, so like I said, I I first went to Alaska in 1990, the spring of 1990, and I don't know. I a week after arriving, I was shipped out to the field site on the Yukon Delta of Alaska to to learn the ropes from then a very experienced technician who had been running the Tatakoke River Field Camp. And, uh, you know, quite a shock, right? Left New York, Pennsylvania, showed up on the Yukon Delta, which is an expansive, flat coastal plain. And when we showed up in early May, it was, uh, was white. It was a white golf course that extended forever. Anyways, um, got... In, uh, in the camp, and um, my research was focused on site fidelity in general of brand, a behavior of them returning to the same place year after year. And I looked at that at multiple scales. I looked at it at the colony st- scale, uh, black brand, brand in general, nesting colonies. 
and I was asking, do they return to those colonies year after year? I looked at whether once they returned, did they return to the same nest site? And did they use the same area to raise their broods? The, the fun part of that for me, well, it was a very interesting question in general, but it allowed me to travel around and visit other colonies to see if birds were moving. We have them marked with uh, uh, tarsal tags that are individually coded. And I traveled around to the western Arctic of Canada, Anderson River Delta specifically, several colonies on the Yukon Delta, to the north slope of Alaska, Colville River Delta, and I looked for Brant over the next four years that it had dispersed and asked the question, how much do they move? And so what a great way to get get a taste of Alaska. And um, yeah, that, that was an excellent project for me. It worked out really well and worked really well with Jim Sedinger, my advisor at the time, and he continues to be very actively involved in Black Brant management conservation, even in retirement. Mark, did you have uh, graduate students that, that did work on, on Brandt over the years? No. So when I finished my work on Brandt, I had um, uh, Jim continued to supervise the project. He's, I believe he's been supervising that. He supervised that project from 1984 to 2017. Um, I had students work on emperor geese, a student work on emperor geese on the Yukon Delta, but it was only in like 2016 that I started to talk to Jim about his retirement and who was going to take over. And I started going out back out to the Delta then. And then in 2018, I took over leadership of the field site at Tatako Oak River. And I supervised uh, students there and still do. Um, but I was in charge of the camp through 2021. And now David Coons is taking over leadership of that project. We'll hop right into this one, and I'll get you to talk about, well, the first question I guess I have for you from a personal perspective, and I think it's also a great place to start for this episode, is the common name for this species. You can talk. You can start out with the, the scientific name, but I want you to talk about the common names that we often hear for this species. You'll hear it referred to as Brant, Black Brant, Pacific Brant, Pacific Black Brant. I've heard some people use that. Atlantic Brant, there's Brent geese. So kind of unpack, unravel all of that that nomenclature around this species, if you could. Thanks, Mike. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. So as I already mentioned, my work has been almost on Brant, has been almost exclusively in the West. And that subspecies that exists in that uh, flyway um, is black brant, Pacific black brant, sea goose of the north, I've heard it called, because <laughs> um, they have almost an exclusive marine um, habit. And um, they're one of three species worldwide. Um, they nest in the Yukon Delta and then the uh, Alaska and Western Arctic of Canada, as well as the Arctic of Russia, the black brant does. And that's Branta bernicla nigricans, that subspecies. The other North American subspecies that's recognized are Atlantic Brant, which nests in eastern Arctic Canada and winter on the East Coast, notably New Jersey and New York shores um, and um, coast. And um, they're known as Branta bernicla rota, and they're distinguished from the black brant by their belly color. So Atlantic Brant have almost a white belly, uh, black brant as the name implies, have nearly a black belly. Uh, there's a hybrid. It's not officially 
recognized as a subspecies in the central Canadian Arctic, more to the west, in the Perry Island region is, is the gray-bellied brant. They're called, they don't have a specific subspecies designation. They're, um, they breed in that region. They, they look like they're hybrids between Atlantics and Blacks, as, as uh, the genetics shows. And they tend to uh, winter in the Padilla Bay region of Washington. Um, they do pass through uh, Eisenbeck Cold Bay area, as we'll talk about here in a little bit as well. Um, but they tend to uh, winter further north than do the black brand, which I forgot to mention, uh, used to predominantly uh, winter in, in Baja, California, Mexico. But as I'm sure we'll talk about over the last two decades, have really started to change that distribution. And then just to finish the the, the world population of Brant, the European um, subspecies, Branta bernicla. Bernicla is often called the Brent goose. And um, I hope you don't ask me much about them because <laughs> I don't I don't know much about them. But um, that's the three subspecies. But Branta bernicla is the species. So when we talk about any type of Brant or Brent geese, it's it's that. It's one, it's the same species, but there are different subspecies and maybe even some subpopulations within those subspecies out there. Is that also kind of a, the thing that I've read, like maybe the Western High Arctic, Eastern High Arctic, that may just be more related to some of the breeding populations. Is that right? Yeah, that's the breeding populations. And, you know, from a management standpoint, they're not managed differently. So, uh, conservation standpoint, I don't think for this podcast, those designations are as important, but they're certainly um, in the sciences, we talk about those population down to the population level because we're interested in, in how they are changing or the specific challenges they might face on the Yukon Delta versus the Arctic Coastal Plain of Alaska, for example. So that population designation, I think, is less important probably to the end user if you could, or the hunter, if you could think of it that way. You and I were talking before we started recording, and I was asking about 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 how much work you had done on Atlantic Brant uh, versus Pacific Brant, and you you made the point that you know most not just your research, but most of the research in general for Brant in North America has been conducted on the Pacific subspecies, Pacific Brant, Black Brant, and that's not to say we don't know a few things about the Atlantic Brant. But for the for this podcast, most of what we'll talk about will relate to the Pacific Brant. Uh, so just want to kind of give people a, a heads up on what to expect there. You did note that there are some some key developments through the years for Atlantic Brant that will be important, and some differences, some major differences in the ecology of those subspecies that we'll touch on. But for the most part, and largely because a significant volume, significantly more from a volume standpoint of research has been done on the Pacific brand. That'll be our focus. So I guess, Mark, let's move on here for those that may not be familiar uh, taxonomically and appearance-wise for this, this bird. What are the, what's the brand's appearance and who are its closest relatives within the waterfowl world? Yeah, good question. So there's second smallest goose in North America. The Ross's goose is the only one that's smaller. They're two and a half to about four pounds, depending on the gender and the time of year. <clears throat> Late summer, they're at their lowest weight after breeding. And then um, when they stage for the black brand, when they stage for migration, they, they put on almost half again their weight and get up close to four pounds. They're not much bigger than a mallard, um, but their appearance is 
very unique. Um, black Brant, like I said, and Atlantic for the top part are mostly black. They have a very distinct neck ring, um, white neck ring that is quite uh, subtle, but uh, I think you would agree is pretty beautiful. And then, like I said, the Black Brant has mostly well, they have some uh, grayish barring on their side, and then the belly on the black brand is black, and that on the Atlantic brand is mostly white. Taxonomically, that's a good question about the closest <laughs> relatives. I, 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 well, they're in Branta, so they're related to other geese. Um, I actually don't know off the top of my head the most closely related goose. So I was doing some additional reading on this species earlier today and, and last night because I was kind of curious about some of these things. I try to come into these conversations with some understanding of, of, uh, of background material. Barnacle geese and Canada geese and, and Brant are all kind of in that same, I don't know, clade or whatever would be the proper term. Does that, make, that sound about right? That sounds about right. Yeah, that's what I would have guessed, but uh, I must admit I didn't review that in the, <laughs> off the top of my head. I wasn't sure. So I'm glad you you did your yeah. homework more than me. What about like appearance differences between adults and and juveniles or first year birds? Uh, people, most a lot of people are going to be familiar with uh, the the difference in appearance between first year white fronts, first year snow geese, and their respective adults. How does that that pattern play out for Brant? Yeah, the most distinguishing feature between the um, the juveniles of the year and the adults is the the coverts, the feathers on the wing that cover the uh, trailing feathers. The primaries and the secondaries are white edged in the juveniles and all black in the adults, and that's visible in flight and certainly in hand. And that stays with the bird through its first year of life before it molts that and replaces it thereafter. The juveniles tend not to have quite as much of a white neck ring either, but um, that's not always the case. And the white coverts are a guaranteed that that's going to be visible and, and useful for aging birds. Yeah, and highly visible when the birds are in flight. That's one of the things that I found myself noticing as we were out hunting the birds. And you can see them if they bank with the, and if you got this, the sun, if they're close enough, uh, then it's very, very easy, like it is with with other goose species, to identify the the young from the adults. And so, just wanted to point that out. You know, this this is a species of goose that that is going. It is definitely more restricted in its distribution across North America. It's more of an estuarine, a coastal bird, and so as a result of that, there's going to be a larger percentage of our listener base and of the people that are interested in in this podcast that will not have interacted much or kind of seen Brant compared to, let's say, white fronts or Canada geese or snow geese. And so, uh, I think it's pretty cool in that regard. It's another one of those species that we can introduce people to that they may not have encountered to this point. So, in, in that regard, one of the things that I want to do is play the call of, of the Brant. This is a single bird. Mark, I don't really remember this being a prominent call that we heard there at Cold Bay, but I don't know how many instances we would have had a single bird, more like flocks of thousands that we had. And so here's a, I think this is a, a call from a flock of Brant. It's a pretty interesting call I found it to be. And then here's another. So a grunty, growly kind of call, and they also do a little bit of a of a rolling of their of their call in some respects. And so anyway, that's that's what they sound like. And we were out there 
on Eisenbeck Lagoon, and we had tens of thousands that were across the water. And I took an audio recording of that on my phone, and and it's it's pretty cool to hear that sound kind of coming across the water there. Yeah, they're, that call is wonderful. I'm most interesting of the geese, if you ask me. But uh, it's interesting. They talk about how smells bring back memory, but that call for me is brings back really fond memories. So it's a uh, it's it's a neat one. Uh, well, let's move along here, Mark. I want to talk about distribution. You've covered this a little bit from a global standpoint. So let's just talk about from the big picture standpoint, where do these birds in North America breed? Where, where will people find them? Yeah, so again, black and Atlantic are a little, um, well, they're quite different, but um, black are a bit unique in that they do nest out of the Arctic and the Yukon Delta historically has been the main breeding area for the black brand. That's changing slowly but surely, but um, currently it's still the predominant breeding area for black brand. Although that breeding range extends, of course, into the Arctic of Alaska, Western Arctic of Canada, and the Arctic of Russia, Eastern Russia as well. There was one place that uh, I don't think there's brant nesting there anymore that I really liked on the Sword Peninsula. I was hoping to visit during my PhD. It was Nug-Nugaluktuk. It used to have a small colony of of brant, um, but I never made it there, and I don't think they're there anymore. Ah, that's too bad. Well, you remembered the name properly, though. Yeah, there you go. The central Arctic of Canada, more western, I should say, Perry Islands. Again, the gray bellies, which are hybrids between the Atlantic and blacks, and then the Atlantic's predominantly um, eastern Arctic of Canada, and um, to my knowledge, nothing further south of the Arctic. Um, I'm thinking for a moment there, but yeah, I think they're restricted to the eastern Arctic of Canada and their breeding distribution. One of the interesting things that you shared with us last week, Mark, is that for that Pacific population, there are birds that there, there's a group of birds or subpopulation that will that nest along the north slope of Alaska, and then there's a group or colony that lists that that breeds there, nests there in the uh, in the Yukon Delta. And you were telling us that there's a certain affinity of those sort of how would we say this? Maybe different migration timing or different wintering um, associations between those groups of birds. Do I remember that correctly? Yeah, we're just now starting to tease that out a little bit more. Um, part of the challenge is that most of the studies have been done on the Yukon Delta. There hasn't been quite as much done on the uh, North Slope, although there's some and uh, marking birds notably. But yeah, all the world population of black brand, including those from Russia, migrate to uh, where we were, Cold Bay, Alaska, Eisenbeck uh, Lagoon specifically. They use some neighboring lagoons um, as well in the fall. Uh, they, they show up there about the same time from those various breeding areas, and they stage there for a month plus um, before some of them um, migrate out of there, but fewer and fewer of them uh, leave that area, and some more and more spend the winter at the Eisenbeck. And those that spend the winter seem to be predominantly those breeding in the Arctic, whereas those that still continue to migrate tend to be those breeding on Yukon Delta. Yeah, I found that really interesting. And I know we'll come back and, and touch on that a little bit later on when we talk about migration and, and wintering and, and how that's changing and why it's changing. But I just kind of wanted to piece that together a little bit of the, the distribution of those birds. I guess, would you are they recognized as sort of separate populations or I guess separate breeding populations, right? 
uh, separate breeding populations, but there's still a lot of genetic connection between those. So not to get too much into this now, but again, I studied fidelity for my my PhD work and two forms of it for their affinity to breeding areas. One is natal phylopatry. Do you return to the area where you were born to uh, subsequently breed? And then breeding uh, fidelity or phylopatry is um, do you breed to this area where you previously bred in in a previous year, um, year after year? And about 50%, and this is a real rough number of the individuals that about 50% of the individuals show natal fidelity. That is, they return to the area where they were born to breed, whereas about 95% thereabouts of the birds um, of the birds show breeding fidelity. Once you start breeding in there, you come back to it year after year. And uh, but that exchange of genetic exchange among those populations is quite extensive at um, uh, when they're young, because 50% of them move among various colonies. Mark, let's talk real quick about the wintering distribution of these birds. And and I guess you've already mentioned kind of the staging area there in Eisenbeck Lagoon. If there's anything that you want to add about the Atlantic population, Atlantic branch, you can in terms of key staging areas for them. But also let's talk about wintering locations for the black brant and then what we know about um, uh, Atlantic brant. Okay, let me start with black just because that's more familiar to me. But again, they all stage at the on the western tip of the Alaska Peninsula, mostly at Eisenbeck Lagoon, staying there a month plus, putting on a half again their body weight. Sometimes those adult males are showing up at, oh, 1,200 grams and leaving at 1,800 grams. And for good reason, because one of the things they're famous for is um, they take on a nonstop migration from the Alaska Peninsula to uh, Baja, California, some 60 hours of uh, sustained flight, almost 3,000 miles, and very tied to uh, higher elevation wind patterns that uh, they exploit to to migrate. And Mark, what you mean by that is you they time their departure from Eisenbeck Lagoon to coincide with favorable wind conditions associated with certain types of atmospheric patterns. They get they 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 want that strong tailwind, kind of given that long distance migration, right? Yeah, exactly. And the other thing I'd add about Bran is they're built to fly. Yeah, they're just yeah, they so are. unique and, and geese and um, so fun to watch in flight They and how they work the wind. They, I try to use the analogy of a sailboat. It's almost like they um, exploit that wind with those long, narrow wings in a, in a very unique way for uh, for geese particularly. And in the summer, just to add to that, they're the only goose that I'm aware of that's capable of aerial pursuit of avian predators like gulls. I mean, they will take a glaucous gull on and and track it in the air and even reach out and bite it um, to, to fend it off. So that's pretty fun to watch them. Yeah, that was one of the things that I noticed as well. Their wings are, are very long. They are much more pointed than the wings pointed kind of from a sense of, of, of appearance than what we see in Canada geese, white fronts, snow geese. And that's not unlike some of the differences in wing morphology and wing shape that we see across the entire spectrum of birds. Uh, and we've talked about this on a previous episode about how that is the shape of those wings is kind of evolutionarily tuned to the the uh, some of their foraging strategies and some of the habitats that they occupy in response to their their preferred diet. There's probably some feedback onto those things one from the other, but those longer 
those birds with longer wings, more pointed wings, you typically associate with more open environments, open water environments. In the case of, of Brant, I kind of find myself wondering what it would look like for a Brant to land on on upland. Uh, I'm certain they can do it, but are they a little more awkward than cackling geese and, and let's say, white fronts? Uh, no, they tend to be a little longer-legged, and they're quite capable on land, um, you know, although they don't spend much time there relative to the other geese. I was just thinking in North America, they're the only goose species that hasn't really started exploiting agricultural uh, subsidies, crops in any uh, real numbers. And, uh, uh, but, but during breeding, of course, they're on land and very capable. Of- that, that was one thing that I noted in, in some of the reading about Atlantic Brandt. They, they have started to exploit some of, the, some of the turf grasses, and that relates to, to the changes in their, uh, their food resources on the Atlantic coast. But uh, yeah, Black Brandt, Pacific Brandt certainly have, have not. I didn't find any reference to that. And so the other thing, we'll finish out one little thing here, then we'll take a break. You, you talked about the, the magnificent long-distance flight from Eisenbeck Lagoon all the way down to Mexico, but there are some, there's some portion of that Black Brant population that stops kind of along the way or that will winter in Washington or else stop in Washington and make their way down to Humboldt and then down to San Diego. Is that how large of a percentage of the population uh, do we see doing that? I think it's the minority for sure in the fall. Um, in the spring, that is the way most of them uh, work their way back as they sort of jump between spot, uh, spot maybe a hundred, couple hundred miles apart and work their way back in the spring. But in the fall, it's, it's the minority. And, um, you know, we were talking about this a little bit last week. What I'm fascinated by is how do they communicate that, hey, we're not just flying to the next eelgrass bed today. This is the real deal. We're going 3,000 miles or maybe we're going 2,000 or 1,000 even. But how do they, especially the young birds on, you know, this is the first time. And, uh, and I, I, that fascinates me. Migration in general fascinates me, but that aspect of it is particularly intriguing. This might be a tangent, um, but, you know, add to that other breeders on the Yukon Delta that are ama- even more amazing in migration, Bartelt Godwitz, we talked about a little bit, um, but they go 8,000 miles nonstop over eight days. And Arctic terns who uh, like, have a similar wing structure to brand are going maybe as much as 10,000 miles to the Southern hemisphere. So, I mean, how do you make this decision one day? Hey, I'm going to fly 3000 miles nonstop. And, uh, that's amazing to think about. It is. And, and the fact that they can navigate these to those, those destinations, uh, over such a long distance, it, it really is one of the, it continues to be one of the most, most fascinating aspects of that group of birds from a behavioral standpoint and what they're able to accomplish. Let's pick up with a the wintering distribution of Atlantic brant. Where do we find those? And are there any major staging areas like what we see for, for black brant? Well, wintering-wise, they're uh, 90% of the population of approximately 150,000 brant winter on the coast of New Jersey and, and New York. Um, they extend down to North Carolina at their southern extreme, um, but most of them are on the northern part of that distribution along the Atlantic coast. Um, staging, I 
actually don't know that, Mike. But you do. <laughs> I, I no, not, not enough to it. not enough to talk about it with any confidence. I forget it. I, I forget if it's if it's during fall or spring, but I know uh, James Bay uh, plays a role in the migration of, oh, yep. of Atlantic Brant, but I can't remember if it's coming or going or if it's both, actually, it may be. Their migration distance in general is much shorter. Yeah. You know, it's it's less than half the distance that the black are migrating. So I would, I would suspect that the staging areas um, may be less dominant and important given that distance, but... Um, I, I'm shooting from the hip a little bit there. Mark, I, I think right now is a good time to talk about one of the more notable things in the ecology of Brant and what we've learned over the years, and that is how their distributions during winter have changed. I think related to that, we'll want to talk about their diet because that plays a key role in some of uh, some of what we're what we've observed over the years. Maybe uh, maybe more on the Atlantic for Atlantic Brant with regard to some of the profound changes in their, uh, in their food resources there. So let's start with that. Brant are incredibly fascinating because of their reliance, heavy, heavy reliance on a very small group of foods. And for Black Brant, it's primarily one species of plant. They've had to expand their diet on the Atlantic coast because of some some losses of their traditionally favored food item. But talk about that. Why are Brant, what makes Brant so cool from their foraging uh, and, their, and their food preferences? Yeah, so through much of the year, except breeding, they rely almost exclusively on eelgrass as their, their main food resource. And eelgrass is a long, narrow um, ocean plant that um, that is uh, um, pretty extensively distributed, but not always very productive in all of its range. And so Brant tend to focus on those areas where it's most productive. But it does appear, as you mentioned in Atlantic, that uh, eelgrass is sensitive to a change and, um, and is deteriorated in some regions. It appears to be deteriorating in Mexico, probably because of agricultural runoff and and uh, sedimentation and uh, introduction of pesticides and um, that are affecting its productivity. And as we talked around a little bit, I, and of the two points I want to emphasize today about black brand, this is one of them. Um, we're seeing black brand starting to respond to that change as well. So 20 years ago, um, the estimates were less than 5% of the population wintered in Alaska. And today that estimate's close to 40% are thought to winter in Alaska now. And you can, you can debate that a little bit, but we've shown it's very tied to El Nino cycles in the, the Pacific and ocean temperatures associated with that, which are likely affecting eelgrass as well. And, um, like I said, 40% of the world population of brand, black brand are starting to, are now wintering in, in Alaska. I want to explore that in a little detail because I was I was describing to my wife about some of these things. She she worked for Ducks Unlimited back in the day and has an interest in waterfowl and wetlands. And I was explaining some of these things to her and, and she asked me a few questions. I'm like, I don't I don't really know how that would have played out. So historically, back at a back at the time when you said they were that only five percent of the Black Brant population overwintered in Alaska, uh, there at Eisenbeck Lagoon. What 
was unfolding? What were conditions like there during winter? Did it freeze? Did, did Eisenbeck Lagoon freeze back then and they simply weren't able to stay there? Or was it a situation where they, the you know, the food resources in Mexico were so much better? Have we seen a change in food resources one way or another? Uh, or is it just sort of the result of some different strategies employed by by individual brant and then we're not seeing as dire a consequences these days for those birds that are wintering in in Eisenbeck Lagoon and just through time we've seen those birds succeed and represent a larger portion of the population what's how's all that playing out I, I ask you about a dozen questions in that right there so let me go back and say historically would Eisenbeck Lagoon ever freeze I think it froze more extensively than it does today. I don't know that it ever froze up, but interestingly, I was telling you earlier about an article that's recently come out um, that included an interview with Jeff Wosley, who I said had spent 20 years there. And um, he was recalling, I think it was last year, Eisenbeck froze as much as it ever had in the time that he's been there. And there were some 70,000 birds winning there. I suspect this was probably in December November, this occurred, and they displaced for a while, but then returned to the lagoon and apparently did fine. So even if it did freeze historically, um, the birds might have had alternatives in more exposed uh, habitats or other areas that were um, not freezing. So I don't know that that alone is the explanation. And, and the we don't know is the answer, by the way, why more wintering there. I don't think it's a single reason. Um, the other dimension that has intrigued me is that we've shown a real decline in the condition of goslings that are produced both on the Yukon Delta and the North Slope of Alaska habitat conditions for foraging during brood rearing or grading. And um, they, uh, I wonder if they're not capable of the flight. And so maybe the decision is made to not go, or if they go, they don't make it, and the tradition is not passed on. It seems a little too rapid a change to think that it's translating through generations in that manner yet. So again, I don't think it's the the sole reason, but it's one that intrigues me. Um, so Brand are leaving the Yukon Delta at much lower mass than those from the North Slope, and they're in pretty rough shape when they show up at Cold Bay. And we've shown... And the other really good data set, I think, is over the last 20 years, sur- first-year survival of those goslings has declined at a, an alarming rate. Um, so up around 60% or so 20 years ago for both uh, brand on the, uh, goslings produced on the North Slope and Yukon Delta. And today, that's down around 20% for both populations. Wow. And so... You wonder how that's translating into things like migration traditions and, you know, not a much smaller fraction of the goslings produced that year are making that migration. And who knows how that's translating through generations. You mentioned that there seems to be a relationship to between the number of Brant wintering in Mexico and El Nino events or El Nino year El Nino years can you explain that a little bit what's uh, El Nino is the warming uh, is a pattern of the warming of Pacific waters near the near the equator but how does that affect do we know how that affects the resources there in Mexico and how it might be less beneficial or how or it, it might you know be ad, adverse create adverse conditions for Brant yeah I think the other way to think about it is that it, it creates 
more favorable conditions than the north. I see. So it may not just be the adverse effect. I mean, they might be able to show up in Eisenbeck and and identify or or um, react to cues that they're experiencing. Maybe even ocean temperature, production of eelgrass in those years might be changing. And um, just say, well, is it really worth it? Um, why not just stay here? And um, so I, I'm not so sure it's them anticipating the conditions that might exist in Mexico as much as what they're experiencing when they show up at Cold Bay. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I really hadn't looked into it that much, but that makes sense, I guess. What else from kind of a historical change perspective there at at Eisenbeck uh, or what we're seeing there in, in Mexico? Anything that we've kind of left out that's of importance here? Maybe from a harvest standpoint. I mean, traditionally, the harvest was almost exclusively in Mexico, and that is changing with more and more birds being harvested in, in Cold Bay, Eisenbeck specifically, and um, harvest rates there have gone from about 1% to 4% over the last couple of decades. And Mexico is, it's got some really traditional users, but it's becoming less and less important from a harvest standpoint than it used to be. Let's talk about Atlantic Brant for just a minute for, in terms of historical changes in their food base. Uh, also, like like Black Brant, uh, they, their primary diet item, their primary food historically was eelgrass. But talk about some of the key events that occurred back through the years and how that has affected where we see or what we see as the diet of, of Atlantic Brant these days. Yeah, so there's two major events in the history of Atlantic Brant that I'm familiar with, the 1930s, which I'm sure isn't very well documented, but there was some type of well, disease that spread through the eelgrass beds. I don't know if that was temperature-related or not, but it was very descriptive back then, but apparently Atlantic Brant numbers just absolutely plummeted. And then again in 1970s, which was better documented, um, change in eelgrass productivity, um, I don't remember the exact reasons, but estimates of number of Brant went from Atlantic Brant went from 200,000 to 40,000 in a couple years. And, um, you know, they're a pretty captive audience, right? There's not extensive eelgrass beds that are productive enough to sustain them. So, you know, mortality rates had to been insanely high um, for that to occur. You know, adults on average are surviving at about 80% per year. And if you do some quick math, their numbers had to been less than 50% um, annual survival during that period to have that kind of decline. So they're pretty vulnerable to those kind of changes. And it appears the changes in Mexico for black brand are occurring slowly. But um, but now you potentially have most of the population in, in a, almost a single lagoon system in Alaska. I mean, the vulnerability of that species and, you know, unlike Atlantics, there's no opportunity if you're wintering in Alaska to go feed on golf courses or on uh, terrestrial plants, um, which might be available to Atlantic brant wintering um, in New Jersey. Yeah, I, I did read that the Atlantic brant have adapted to that, the, the decline of their, the, of those eelgrass grass beds by exploiting some golf courses and other turf grass areas. And I, I'm pretty sure that that's the feeding, primary feeding habit of Brent geese in Europe as well. I seem to recall that they're, they're one of those upland, have become one of those upland grazing species. You widgeon as well in, in certain parts of Europe have adapted to those, those upland landscapes and are foraging on that, that green grass. Incidentally, that might be the reason why there's a significant difference in the 
in the the flavor profile, you might say the the table worthiness of black brand and Atlantic brand. I've heard that's always the thing that people will one of the first things people will say when I tell them that I've returned from Cold Bay, Alaska, and we harvested a few brand. They're like, "Have you eaten the brand yet?" And it's like, "No, not yet." I actually have though. The past two nights, I did have brand, and it is absolutely wonderful. People will tell you that black brand on the Pacific Coast, uh, the Pacific brand are. By, by all accounts, I've not heard anyone say anything different, are the best tasting waterfowl species, at least in North America. Uh, and Atlantic Brant are pretty far on the other end of, the, of that uh, spectrum, that gradient in terms of how they, how they are as table fare. And you have to believe it's related to diet, correct? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I'm not going to dispute with anything about that in terms of table fare. I mean, Black Brant are amazing. Yeah, their taste is incredible. Yeah, and that is actually just to reinforce that one thing I do know about the uh, European brand, the Brent geese and the widgeon there, the degradation of habitat has caused them to use terrestrial food resources more in winter than they used to. And um, again, I wonder how much of that will be available to Pacific brand or black brand if if Mexico resources decline and or worse yet, Atlantic resources decline. Um, seemed like a pretty vulnerable population from that standpoint. Let's talk about spring migration. If you if you think that's an appropriate way to go, yeah, that's fine. We're we're kind of on that topic, and and I mentioned already that uh, uh, blacks. It's kind of weird. I call them black brands, and I call the Atlantics Atlantics, of course. But uh, you you tend to be Pacific, but hopefully everyone's with us um, when I say black. I mean Pacific black brands. So, anyways, they trickle north in the uh, in the spring and um in addition to eelgrass there is some evidence that they're probably using some um some herring roe too and it enters their diet and i don't know that they would taste as good in the spring um i haven't had the opportunity but it would fatten you up pretty quickly and they they just make their way north in a like i said sort of hopping point to point including some staging areas up the uh, west coast of Alaska even before they make landfall on their breeding areas. And um, there's one uh, study I'll mention relative to this uh, student that I didn't advise but I interacted with and still do today who uh, worked on uh, the physiology of Brandt both wintering in Cold Bay, Eisenbeck, and in Mexico, and they did that by collecting birds and looking at their physiological condition. Um, interestingly, those birds by the spring had basically converged on a very similar condition. So you had these birds in Cold Bay that had to deal with a winter that was pretty challenging, and you know their their uh, condition declined because of that. But the birds that flew to Mexico had the cost of migration. But once they arrived there, they had better weather, of course, and reasonable resources. And then as they worked their way north, they were hitting good resources coming up coast to British Columbia and, and so forth. Um, but by the time they rejoined each other, this is like 20 years ago, um, in the spring, their condition was very similar. So I thought that was a pretty fascinating part of it. That study was done uh, like I said, almost 20 years ago now. And I I think that would be a fascinating study to redo. And um, I volunteer to go out and help them <laughs> do that. I'm, I bet you would as well. Um, I, I'm sure I would. Let me talk to Steve about that. I'll see if I can uh, work that into my schedule. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I thought that was an interesting part from a migration standpoint. 
the strategy of staying or migrating, at least in those years, was resulted in almost the same outcome. Yeah. And I and there's something else that has been looked into a little bit, um, not as extensively as we hope, but there's something called cross-seasonal effect, and that is how are the decisions you make in terms of winter translate into breeding areas. And there there is some evidence that it does translate, but not at a level that's um, huge. It's not a big effect. Yeah, those are two dramatic differences, uh, two dramatically distinct migration wintering strategies. One is let's just stay in Alaska and the other is let's fly down to Mexico. And just as you've talked about this issue of cross-seasonal effect and what are the how do different migration strategies translate into differences in reproductive reproductive success is a is a very important topic and it's getting a lot of attention among some of the duck species out there right now. And it's just fascinating that apparently there's not much of a difference, at least historically 20 years ago there wasn't. But yeah, I agree with you that looking at that again would certainly be fascinating. So, you know, we were talking about population strategy, basically. Do you winter in, in, are you part of the population of winters in Alaska or are you part of the population of winters in Mexico? And I think by and large, that is what's going on. It's a population level strategy. Yukon birds tend to go to Baja. Uh, North Slope birds tend to stay in Alaska. But I got involved in some research, um, it was 10 years ago now, and it was on individual heterogeneity and basically individual strategies. And it's a really fancy word that, or phrase that means there's some birds in the population that are better at what they do than others. Um, And some of this came out of my PhD way back in the 1990s. There was something we documented that was really strange to me at the time that there was members of the Pacific brand population that we characterized as permanent non-breeding. So to our knowledge, they never successfully bred to the point where year after year, they were identifiable on molding areas for failed and non-breeding brand. And at Teshapuk Lake on the North Slope of Alaska, these birds year after year after year would show up there. And someone actually did work on the fidelity of these birds. We looked in it a little bit differently and just asked over the life of the bird, are there individuals in the population that do really well? And then those that don't do as well. And roughly we call them good and bad birds. And sure enough, there's really strong signatures that you see in uh, Pacific brand on the Yukon Delta, at least for, for individual heterogeneity or individual variation in quality relative to survival and reproduction. And there's these really productive birds that if you harvest them, um, it has much more effect on the population dynamics than harvesting, quote unquote, bad bird. And that really intrigues me from the harvest standpoint. Now, you know, for waterfowl, brant for sure, there's no external characteristics. There's not anything you could look at in a bird flying by and say, shoot that one, don't shoot that one. I mean, you know, roughly speaking, if you could shoot a juvie over an adult, that's one way of thinking about it. You you would be better off from a population standpoint shooting the juvie or for that matter, shooting the male over the female if you could identify them which you can somewhat in, in flight, but, but then within females, there's this range of quality of these individuals. And that just intrigues me to no end. There's these birds that we could look at their individual histories and they're just absolute um, super birds from a production standpoint. And um, we got into some population modeling in it, but you can actually 
um, show mathematically, this sounds like hocus pocus, but it's not, um, you could show that you can increase harvest. And if you could target quote unquote bad birds or low quality birds, you could actually have the population increase in abundance because by doing so, you've increased the proportion of the population that um, is is made up of good birds. Yeah, it makes total sense to me. You consider it a, if, if you were able to do it, you're effectively kind of quote high grading the population to a larger percentage of those great, of those more productive birds. No, I, I get it. Yeah. And I think there's some opportunities to exploit it. I mean, it's getting, you need really good data to be able to do this really refined data. But if you think of Brandt and Pacific Brandt, you know, again, back to these permanent non-breeders, if that's true, they're probably low quality birds. You could go target harvest to them, maybe at Teshapuk Lake and have minimal effect on the population rather than shooting the breeding birds from the colonies we spoke of already. So the opportunity uh, intrigues me. Um, you know, one of the largest migrations now, waterfowl are molt migrating resident Canada geese in the Atlantic, right? Um, those are likely tend to be lower quality individuals. Um, may not be breeding, may not be successfully breeding. If you could target them, you could shoot a lot of them and have middle, more, less of an effect on the population than in, if you went and shot breeding birds. So Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. And individual differences in, in reproductive rates or survival rates and then behaviors is... It's a growing field. I saw a social media post a few days ago by Dr. Mike Chamberlain, who is a turkey ecologist, researcher. I think, yeah, I think Mike is at the University of Georgia still. And with individually marked birds, they're able to look at the, I think they were looking at movements and distances traveled and how there are different birds that do different things. And then in the context that he was looking at it, there's the potential for those different behaviors to expose them to greater or lesser risk of, of being harvested. And so the idea that all birds or all animals are the same and they're, they just represent a an average animal, I think we're certainly getting to the point where we can throw that notion out the window. But then how do we quantify those individual differences and are there management implications for those differences is really where it sounds like we're going next in, in a number of ways, which is, yeah, very fascinating. Yeah, I find it completely fascinating. And there's got to be a genetic basis for it. That quality has to be heritable to be of importance in the population. And, you know, the the more obvious examples are in the mammal world where, you know, we're shooting uh, full curl rams only. Well, arguably, those are high-quality individuals by definition. So the harvest of, of sheep, uh, doll sheep, thinking of those in, in Alaska at least, is exclusively of high-quality individuals. And so just through math, you're reducing the proportion of high-quality individuals in the population. And you might even be selecting for changes in horn length. We've seen this in moose. Um, the number of brow tines used to be more focused on in terms of harvest regulations. And they've shown in populations that you basically eliminate the genetics for individuals with more than three brow tines because you're focusing harvest there. So I think there's examples that this is translating out more challenging in the bird world, more challenging to identify quality by external characteristics. But 
I think we need to start thinking about this more and more because it could be an opening to increase harvest while uh, reducing impacts. Thanks for that, Mark. This is probably a good place for us to take a break. We're about halfway through the conversation. And so we'll do that right now and then we'll continue this discussion here in just a few moments. Stay tuned to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, sponsored by Purina ProPlan, after these messages. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina ProPlan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Dr. Mark Lindbergh talking about Brandt. When we left off, we had just concluded with a discussion about individual heterogeneity uh, and how fascinating that was, you know, even not just within waterfowl, but all a lot of different species of wildlife. We had touched a little bit on um, the, I guess, some of the differences between Pacific Brant and Atlantic Brant and some of their migration tendencies. And I think that's what stimulated this conversation about individual heterogeneity, differences in how individual birds will will approach certain aspects of breeding or migration. Um, I think it was also at that time that we, when we took that break, we said we were going to kind of go back and study up a little bit on Atlantic Brant, because in the previous episode, much of our discussion was on Pacific Brant, that being where you've studied most of your career. And uh, so, yeah, I guess that's where I wanted to start out is I, I know you did have a, some some time to look back at some information on Atlantic brand. Is there anything that we need to clean up or supplement the previous episode regarding Atlantic brand uh, from from last time? Yeah, uh, thanks for the opportunity to do so. I, I had forgotten about their migration patterns, and I think it's worth mentioning. Uh, the Pacific we covered in quite a bit of detail, and I, as I told you, I've been very was always very impressed with that. Uh, nonstop migration they make from uh, Cold Bay, um, Alaska Peninsula, most of them all the way to Baja, California and Mexico, almost 3,000 miles. And for some reason, I I wasn't remembering the Atlantic Brant migration patterns and I had in my mind geographically that it wasn't as far. But just recapping that now in the fall, uh, they leave their main breeding areas, which is south of Baffin Island in the area known as the Fox Basin um, in the Canadian, eastern Canadian Arctic. And um, they, they fly to James Bay at the southern tip of Hudson Bay, where they spend um, upwards of almost two months uh, staging. But the interesting part to me of reviewing that again is that that initial movement when they're at depleted body condition in the late summer, the lowest weight is a thousand miles. So unlike Pacific brand that aren't moving nearly as far to the far to their fall staging area, those Atlantic brand have to make a fairly substantial movement to James Bay to stage and build reserves for the next thousand miles or so 
that they'll migrate to the uh, Atlantic coast again, focused on New Jersey and um, New York is more than most of them uh, spend the winter. But then in the fall, they have less opportunity to trickle back north, or I'm sorry, in the spring, they have less opportunity to trickle back north and do Pacific brand. And again, they have to make a fairly substantial jump from their final spring staging areas on Atlantic coast to James Bay, which they return to again, about a thousand miles spending again, about a month there and then jumping up to largely the Fox basin area of the Eastern Canadian Arctic. So, um, I hadn't thought about that much until you asked the question and, and, um, it would be fascinating to have a comparison of the physiological, um, strategies that they employ for those um, quite different migration demands that they have. And if you're going to do one nonstop 3,000 mile flight, you probably would use a different strategy than two 1,000 mile legs. And um, that would be interesting to see that comparison, which I don't think has been done. So anything else to add there, Mark? I don't think so, other than maybe just a note, um, you know, abandoning a strategy that's so risky is well risky right um you know these birds leave um an area and are flying thousands of miles in anticipation of finding suitable habitat for them to survive and it actually um, goes to some of the vulnerabilities of migratory birds because changes that are occurring in areas where they're not currently at could have huge effects on them, um, positive and negative for that matter. If we start thinking about snow geese, um, from a positive standpoint, but imagine, you know, there's some catastrophic, uh, oil spill or some type of contamination that's occurring on staging or wintering areas. And you leave an area anticipating you're going to find good stuff and you don't. And I think that, um, I just want to mention that because, Migratory birds and migratory traditions require um, an extra level of vigilance as we manage them and their habitats to think about and and putting in a plug in for you guys. I think you think with that 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 viewpoint that boy, there's some birds coming from a long way off that are going to rely on the habitats that we're we're uh, conserving and um, you know we got to do a good job of that because if they show up and it's not well done, uh, they're in trouble. Mark, the other thing that will probably add to the discussion from uh, from part one of this of this series is relates to the diet of Atlantic Brant. We talked about how they are beginning to shift due to some of the uh, historical changes and decline of their eelgrass habitats. They've successfully adapted and changed their diet to include some some upland grasses from golf courses or other uh, other type of of turfy areas. The other thing that they that they will consume and has been found in a, a fair percentage of the diet of of Atlantic brant that have been examined are things such as widgeon grass. They do do still eat eelgrass where they can find it, but they also supplement that with widgeon grass. And then a fair amount of algae, I forget exactly what kind of algae it is, uh, but that's become a pretty common part of their diet on the Atlantic coast. So uh, showing some flexibility there over the years in what they're able to consume, but uh, still, still almost exclusively a vegetarian species. And so just wanted to make sure we add that, added that in our discussion. The other thing that I'll note right now is that as I've heard you talk here a few times already in this episode there's a 
your your son's parakeet, I think, in the background is chiming in to help out with the conversation. So if people hear the bird chirping in the background, just know that's what that is. I, I do find that it's it responds whenever you start talking there, Mark, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, I'm surprised you're picking it up. He's uh, back in the corner, frightened because <laughs> I tried to catch him, but unsuccessfully. Uh, it's so, all good. Uh, it adds, it kind of adds to the ambience. <laughs> I just, uh, one question I had when you were adding about the diet that you might know better than me is, um, so these birds moving on to golf courses, I haven't thought about this for a, a long time, but is there more and more regulation about application of pesticides and insecticides to golf courses or fertilizers that are being considered given that you know the reliance increased reliance on that food i'm really not sure I, I don't have a read on that at all that would be a conversation for someone that i guess is more familiar with uh, the the habits and tendencies of of brant that may have thought about that uh, in in terms of their consumption of, uh, of pesticides or herbicides that would have been applied to golf courses and i i don't even know how common foraging on golf courses per se are. I just, I know I've seen that referenced uh, along with foraging in other sort of turfy, grassy areas. So don't have a good read on that. It's a good question though. Yeah, something I don't think about much from Alaska. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Mark, let's move along to sort of the breeding ecology of this species. And I think here there'll be some similarities between the Atlantic brant, Pacific brant. So just kind of walk us through that. I, I think we've I don't remember if we talked about it on the previous episode about lifelong pair bonds for this species and uh, anything else regarding mating system. And then we can just kind of move into the nesting system for the, or, or nesting season for the birds. Yeah. Like all geese, they're monogamous and but the, the, there's exceptions to that and they divorce and they have extramarital affairs and, um, and, uh, yeah, there's surprising data from some species where we've done genetics about how many males are actually involved genetically in the in the production of a clutch. Um, you see a pair of emperor geese is the work I'm thinking of, and you think, wow, they're a really strong pair, and surely it's the only male contributing, but in genetics show two or three males might have contributed to that clutch. So, um, yes, they are uh, long-term monogamous, though, and... Um, one aspect of that or sort of side aspect of it is that waterfowl are exceptions among birds. There's a few other groups, but um, they exhibit what's called female bias phylopatry and that the female returns to the site that she chooses, which is typically the site she was born at or uh, previously bred at. And the male is just along for the ride. So, um, you kind of delta colony, you'll get males from all over the place um, that are they're paired with females that are predominantly from those breeding colonies. Mark, we had a conversation with Dr. Javon Bank recently where we did a species profile on, on greater white-fronted geese. And in that conversation, we began to talk about the different strategies that waterfowl employ with regard to where they get their nutrients that they need for egg production and nesting. We started talking a bit about the uh, the capital versus income breeders, and and that was in reference to kind of where white-fronted geese fall onto that on that gradient. What do we know about about Brant in terms of where they are in on that gradient? Uh, do they bring with them all of the nutrients that they need to uh, to cre- to create to produce a clutch of eggs and incubate, or do they supplement that with some foraging once they get? Uh, 
to the nesting grounds. Talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah, by and large, they bring what they need with them. Um, and what you define as the nesting ground gets a little bit um, in the semantics, but you know they are staging on areas close to the terrestrial habitats they'll use and, and taking on nutrients there. So within 50 miles, possibly, of where they'll ultimately make landfall. But the reason for that is there's a real premium on nesting as early as you can. There, there's good data showing that um, nest initiation date is uh, highly uh, correlated with ultimate, uh, well, nest success, but then um, production and growth of your goslings too, because those goslings have to, the timing of hatch has to be such that those goslings have access to um, high quality forage and those birds that nest earlier tend to have goslings that have uh, access to highest quality forage. Boy, that was a mouthful, but <laughs> hopefully you got the, yeah. the point. So um, we've shown a real strong relationship between timing of nesting and ultimate reproductive success. And that's that's a pattern that's similar across all waterfowl species of which I'm aware of, the earlier they get there, the the more, if we're talking about prairie nesting ducks even, the earlier they get there, the more opportunities they have to re-nest. And then there's also some reasons why the earlier they get there, in some cases have been documented, that ducklings survive at higher rates because um, related to kind of typical deterioration of wetland conditions as you get farther into summer. So there's it, there's always, and we've always this urge to, for waterfowl to get there as quick as possible and initiate their nesting as quick as possible. We spoke about that uh, in the context of, uh, of kind of what's happening with waterfowl as they're down here on the wintering grounds and preparing to get back uh, north in the spring. There's this urge to get there as quick as possible. The same thing applies to Brant. That's what you were talking about there, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, there is a bit of a, a caveat to that in that in the really uh, detailed data sets we have, it seems like the earliest nesting birds, um, that's not, you don't want to be first. Um, it seems like those birds are subject to hybridation. You can imagine there's these communities of predators, Arctic foxes in the case of Brant that might have um, been waiting for Brant to return and um, low on food. And so some of those earliest nesters don't do quite as well and or they might be subject to storms or weather patterns that aren't affecting their nest success. And some of the most refined data sets, including that on Pacific Branch, show that the earliest, earliest nesting birds, those first couple of days, don't do quite as well as those that delay a couple of days and then start nesting. Oh, that's interesting. What about nest site selection? What are, are Brant colonial nesters? Where do they fall within that, uh, within kind of that view of things? Uh, talk about their nest site and, and their nesting tendencies. Yeah, so they are classified as colonial nesting and um, they, uh, with few exceptions, they tend to follow that. There are some dispersed nesting birds on islands, um, but that's that's not common and that's low numbers. When I worked as a graduate student on uh, Pacific Brant, they were at a kind of a peak at the colony I worked at. And uh, nearest neighbor distances, the closest distance between nests was down to a meter, three feet roughly. And um, 
there was one, we have these long-term nest plots. We search that they're uh, 50 meter radius circles that um, this one in particular was in the highest density nesting area. And half of that plot area was in a lake. So only half of it was available for nesting. And that plot had 95 nests on it at its peak. Oh my goodness. And you can imagine uh, um, what that sounds like, what that looks like. Um, the uh, challenge for me was we would go in and web tag the goslings hatching from those nests. Some of you are familiar with those tags. We put in the webbing of the, the uh, goslings as they're coming out of the egg. And that helps us identify them later when we catch them uh, uh, during banding. And um, the trick was to get in that colony and web tag goslings without them leaving the nest early. Because sometimes if you disturb them, they'll, they'll leave the nest. So you got 95 nests in a 50-meter radius circle. And you're trying to systematically work around that to... Uh, to mark them and it was it was quite the challenge i basically could never stand up so i crawled nest to nest and the hatch is highly synchronized most of those nests would have hatched in about a week-long period and uh yeah it was fascinating so 90 times well, let's round up so i can do easy math but um 90 times uh 100 times a clutch of four or five you're looking at four to five hundred goslings emerging from eggs, hatching from eggs in a one-week period. And the, the goal was to mark them all, you know. So basically for a week, I crawled around on my hands and knees in a colony um, putting web tags on goslings. And the crawling around on your knees was to minimize the disturbance? Yeah, so, you know, if the female, the hatching of those goslings is fairly synchronized, but sometimes you'll run into a nest where there's three that have hatched and one that is... Um, still pipping and trying to get out of the egg. And if she's disturbed too much, she might just take off with three of those and leave mm. that pipping egg behind. So you need to try to do everything you can to minimize that. And we actually had an observation tower near that that particular part of the colony. So I would work for a couple hours, web tag, and then I'd crawl up in that tower and make myself disappear, take a rest, um, uh, eat some food and uh, yeah, I'm I'm reminiscing here back in the day. <laughs> that plot currently, because of the declines in nest density on that particular colony, only has about ten or fifteen nests now. No so the kidding. current techs have it pretty easy. The colony has shifted um, its distribution, but it's declined by more than half in terms of number of birds too. So they don't have quite that intensive high density area, but Boy, that was a real tangent relative to your question. Their colonial nesting and density sometimes can be as high as a, a meter apart. That's fine. I, I like tangents. The kind of the personal stories and the visuals that you can paint for for us, I think, are pretty cool. We'll move on to sort of the nest itself and the clutch of eggs. Uh, if people haven't gathered already, they do nest on the ground. Uh, any anything unique about their their nest site? Uh, that would differentiate them from any other Arctic nesting goose that nested in the tundra up there, nest on the ground? Uh, nothing too unique other than their willingness to nest so early um, and, and, you know, put eggs on the ground about one per day for four or five days, even in slightly flooded conditions. Um, they'll put them in water. Wow. And, um, and they're pretty much just a scrape 
at that point, nothing more, no down. Um, those eggs are quite viable, even at they can't freeze, but um, even at relatively cold temperatures, because um, the female doesn't start incubating them until about day two or three with any constancy. So they're just sitting out there on the ground, um, somewhat exposed, and they slowly add nest material and then down, and it becomes quite a nice insulated um, nest by the time they're done. Uh, here's a little aside to this, though. Um, one of the areas they're nesting now is subject to occasional flood tides and um and sometimes those tides are high enough um coastal areas that they'll destroy nests but we've had several nests that have simply been lifted by the tide and floated some distance maybe five meters or so uh, 10 feet or so and um and then just redeposited and the female just continues incubating them and they hatch so we've had several instances of that. Where we come back, we have markers at the nest site so we can find them again. And when we come back and there's no nest there, there's a marker, but no nest. And we got to do a little detective work to figure out where the nest is now. And that's, that's been, yeah, that's really interesting. And that kind of brings up another point about some of the risk to these, uh, to, uh, to nest. How often do nests uh, get flooded out? Is the, those flood tides, are they a... Uh, a common source of kind of nest abandonment or nest failure? And are those becoming, those incidents, uh, instances becoming, or incidents becoming more frequent and more severe as we see things change in the Arctic? Yes. Um, fortunately, it seems like the frequency um, from bird nesting standpoint is higher. The increased frequency is higher in the fall than in the spring. Um and and summer for that matter but yeah as you may know we had a one of the more severe um flood tides hit the yukon delta region this fall um and um those are getting more frequent but that one was incredibly severe moving water as far as 20 miles inland and mind you that's not much of an elevational gradient but um it probably put five, six feet of water over the bank at the colony proper. The birds had already left when it hit. Um, but if that hadn't been during nesting, that would have been a complete loss. Um, you know, we've lost, I don't know, uh, five to 10% of the nest at Tatakoak to flood tides in a, a season at a high end. It's not that common in the in, during nesting to get those kind of flood tides. And clutch size, average of about four to five, um, something in that range, right? Yep, four to five eggs is pretty typical. Uh, no re-nesting, no opportunity for that, same as with all other nesting, uh, Arctic nesting geese? Uh, we don't never documented re-nesting, but we've documented a couple cases of what we call continuation clutches, where the bird loses part of its clutch and then continues that clutch in another, uh, at another site. Okay. Or in some cases... D dumps it in what we call dump nest um, where you might have 20 or 30 eggs <laughs> in a single nest that a female you know is obviously not just her own but other birds are dumping their eggs in and then the incubation period for brant where does it fall 24 days 25 days um, like most waterfowl they don't start incubating until um, they've laid an egg or two um, and then the real constancy of, of warming the eggs um, doesn't start until later in the clutch. Um, 
and that's another tangent that's fascinating. But um, how is it that eggs are that are incubated a different amount of time? You know, in a non-egg mallard clutch, say there might be five to six days difference in incubation time, but they all hatch on the same day. So, as, as precocial young, but that's a maybe not a tangent you want to go down. <laughs> that's a topic for another episode for sure. Yeah. Okay, so. Female-only incubation, uh, yet the male stays nearby the nest, uh, provides some vigilance. Anything else? Uh, did I get that right? Yeah, that's true. Um, females only incubate, although it's it's fascinating. So, so we have marked individuals, and we know their gender. Um, a third, uh, maybe a little bit more of the colony uh, has markers on their legs, so we know them individually. And, and you can't easily tell their gender just from appearance. So we've uh we've sexed and aged them when we marked them so we know that and one of the surprises occasionally is that they're very individual in terms of their tenacity to the nest and as you approach sometimes you'll see females slipping off way in advance and other ones you have to literally lift off the nest to to see their eggs gently but we have the occasional one where there's a bird sitting on the nest as we approach, but it seems a little odd. And then when we get there, we realize it's the male that is more protective than the female. He's not he's not incubating, but he'll hover over the nest and you get there and you could tell it's a male because he doesn't have a brood patch. He hasn't removed feathers from his belly to allow him to have skin to egg contact and effectively incubate. But um, you'll have the occasional male that do that. And um, there's one notable male that um, would occasionally land on people's heads as they were visiting the nest. The female would move off. And we have a, a famous, infamous photo of Jim Sedinger with a Brant sitting on his head um, while he inspected the nest. And no one was harmed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm really tempted to ask you, and I guess I will by saying this, if there's any uh, documented relationship between that male aggression and, uh, and, and success of, of the nest. Boy, that was a conversation of many uh, nights um, in the weather ports of our camp. Um, the, uh, the quote came about, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. And, and there's quite a bit of bickering that goes on in, in terms of establishing a nest site. And, and the male has a very prominent role in that. And we wondered who those males were that got the optimal sites. And optimal being in the middle of the colony, sheltered from, buffered from predation, and maybe a high elevation site that doesn't uh, flood as easily. And, and we don't know the answer, but it was a fun conversation to have. Um, at nights at, in camp when we were cooking dinner or something. Yeah, I appreciate these stories and the, the firsthand perspective that you can bring to this. It's a it gives a level of detail that that I can't whenever we're just doing ordinary kind of high level uh, discussion of these species profiles. So uh, I hope our listeners find some value in that as well. Kind of getting them there and seeing some of the really exciting and and unique things and just really impressive aspects of these animals that we that we care so much about we had gotten to the point of the the eggs are going to hatch and so that puts some goslings on the uh, on the ground and talk with us a little bit about that what do the goslings eat the male and female are going to be providing that biparental care because of these long-term perennially monogamous pair bonds uh, but what are the goslings eating and and then talk to us about the thing that's begun to emerge and that that's uh, sort of a topic of exciting research right now 
there's a simple part to this story and then a more complicated part. So the goslings hatch, they actually have a yolk sac that'll allow them to survive for a day or two, but they fairly quickly move on to uh, their preferred sites for foraging, which in the coastal area can be quite long distances. We're, we're kind of intrigued by how they move and we anticipate or expect that they use um, uh, tidal movements to be able to move upwards of 20 miles um, eventually, uh, maybe even a little further. Um, but they're trying to forage on new growth sedge by and large, and uh, its most digestible form is just a small or a low growth form that the goslings could pick at. We call them grazing lawns, and they look like putting greens um, was the probably the best analogy. And those lawns are maintained by grazing from adult geese. And if it's not grazed, again, a good analogy is your hedges. If it's not trimmed, those those sedges will grow to a higher growth form that's less digestible and, and um, usable by small goslings, as you can imagine. And one of the complicated parts of this story is that it appears, well, it, not, it appears, it doesn't appear, it's um, brant numbers declining in some of these colonies. And that feedback and that maintenance of those grazing lawns um, is not being sustained. And it appears that goslings have less and less desirable forage areas, particularly on the Yukon Delta. Um, because numbers of adults have declined and there isn't as much grazing going on before they hatch. And as a result, there's not as much forage there. The reasons for the decline are really debated, but um, in areas like comparable on the north slope of Alaska and Arctic coastal plain where numbers of brand are increasing, um, those grazing lawns appear to be maintained much better. And goslings are fledging from northern part of Alaska, um, much heavier than are those from the Yukon Delta um, because they have better forage during brood rearing. And, and it's not apparent how the if those trends are going to continue or not. And one of the driving questions on the Yukon Delta right now for continued research is, can Brant and maybe other species revert those larger growth forms of those sedges back to the desirable growth forms? And there's a lot of changes going on that um, we don't understand those dynamics very well yet. And this isn't a tangent, but just for an example, when I was leading that project as a student in the early 1990s, God, that just seems like a long time ago. Um, it was. Used, Let me tell you. Yeah, it was. I used to use the phrase um, from Jimmy Buffett's song. Um, he went to Paris, you know, 20 more years slip away. And that doesn't apply anymore because now it's 30 years. And so I need a different song. Anyways, when I was leading that project on the Tatakoke River Brant Colony, it was sort of a treat to find the nesting cackling goose. They were very uncommon and they were distributed largely at the southern end of the colony. And now that colony is pretty much interspersed with them and there are about 50% uh, cacklers and 50% brant nesting there, roughly. And um, maybe those cacklers, which also graze on some of those same plants, will help maintain those lawns. 
Yeah, it's it certainly is an illustration, another illustration of how nature is complex. It's not linear. There are a lot of interacting factors that are controlling what is good or not good for waterfowl and all sorts of other critters that are in the natural world. Uh, and it's uh, that's why sometimes when people ask us a question like what's going on with this, we don't necessarily have the right answer right now. We can identify certain parts of what we think are going on is contributing to it, but it takes it takes some time. It takes some creative thought on how to or what to study and how to study it. And this is a perfect example. And thinking about grazing intensity by geese on on Arctic landscapes and how that affects the nutritional quality of the of the grasses that grow up in response to that level of grazing is not dissimilar from thinking about grazing rates or stocking rates and grazing intensity for cattle production, right? There's an optimal rate, uh, optimal stocking rate and intensity of grazing to to maintain optimal nutrition quality in those grasses. It's exactly the same way of thinking about it, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And the other aspect that we don't, we haven't done a very good job of understanding is how these communities of birds and mammals, for that matter, interact in these environments to affect those habitats and their welfare. So, Mark, we'll move on now, and let's talk about how long it takes the goslings to fledge. What are we looking at there? Yeah, so in the Yukon Delta, uh, well, goslings everywhere take about 45 to 50 days to fledge. Just to give you a rough idea what that might look like, on the Yukon Delta, that hatch hatching occurs about mid-June. Of interest to a lot of people is in about mid-July, we capture the goslings and their adults um, and their parents. We round them up in nets because they're all flightless at that point. The goslings have not reached um, the stage of fledging yet, and the adults are molting their wing feathers, so the entire family is flightless and allows us to capture them. So at about 30 days, roughly, we capture them, place bands on them, and take measurements. And then again, about another 20 days, um, they'll fledge. So sometime in August for Yukon Delta brand goslings, they're, um, they're obtaining flight. So Mark, I think that pretty much completes the, the annual cycle for the birds now that we've got the young on the wing. And so I guess the next step will be to uh, to move on to harvest. And we've talked a little about harvest rates on the previous episode, but not a whole lot about total harvest and things of that nature because this is a time in their annual cycle when the birds start migrating to their fall staging areas and where they start encountering hunters. Uh, but any before we do that, anything that we have overlooked uh, of note on, the, on their breeding ecology? I don't believe so. No, I think we've pretty much covered it. And I think we've done a good job covering that that fall migration as well and the significance of those staging areas. So let's do move on and then talk about harvest. Uh, there's a there, there's at least two different types of harvest. There's a subsistence harvest, and then there's also the the sport harvest. What do we know about uh, about those different you know types of harvest? Uh, maybe if you wanted to, what do we know about harvest rate and then total harvest? Yeah, so I think people probably can relate to total harvest more than a rate because the rate requires you to know how many individuals were actually in the population, and that's disputed. So roughly speaking, uh, harvest uh, total harvest, sport harvest is about 5,000 brand, and that's uh, between Alaska and Mexico by and large with some, some harvest occurring in the um, Pacific coast as well between those two points, but not nearly as much. Those are the two main areas. Um, subsistence harvest is 
really a wild card um, and one that could be of concern. But current estimates of subsistence harvests are between 10 and 30,000 brant, <laughs> Pacific oh, wow. brant. Um, I should qualify it as Pacific brant. So another way of saying that is we don't know what subsistence harvest is. And, you know, a threefold difference in harvest in any given year, which could be as much as a six times the harvest of sport harvest is something we need to learn more about. And um, we just don't have a good way of surveying that. It's, um, it's, it's not well described and there isn't a tradition of reporting information on harvest by um, subsistence users. That's just not part of the culture. So that's a big black box in some ways in terms of that harvest. We do know, um, and this incorporates both um, harvest sport and subsistence harvest, we do know that survival of adults has been relatively stable at around 80 to 85% annually over the last couple of decades, slight decline maybe, um, and that annual survival of first-year birds or juveniles has declined fairly um, substantially during that time. That may or may not be related to harvest and likely um, isn't the predominant contributing factor. And uh, we think the reduced habitat conditions on both breeding and wintering areas are a bigger contributor to gosling, reduced gosling survival than it is harvest. Um, but that gives you a rough idea of what we're, we're looking at for harvest. Again, harvest rates appear to have gone up in recent decades from about 1% to 4%. But again, that relates to the total population size of Pacific brand, I'm quoting here. And that numbers fairly disputed now. Uh, survey techniques have changed quite a bit over the last decade. Notably, um, these winter surveys have been eliminated. And as we've already talked about, Brant are shifting their winter distribution. So that makes it even more difficult for Pacifics. And that number is debated right now. Between 150 to 200,000 is what you'll typically hear. Um, there are some new uh, photographic surveys, video-based surveys going on. Um, they were going on while we were cold bay. Yeah, I and, remember um, that. And those that are doing them have high hopes, but um, we'll see. We still don't know if that that's going to play out. So um, it's a little hard to relate harvest rates and even, for that matter, total harvest to the effects on total population size, which is a little bit difficult to know. Atlantic Brant are about 150,000 as well. By the way, I don't know as much about harvest over there, though. You know, Mark, I was actually looking at that as you were talking. Um, uh, harvest of Atlantic Brant from 1999 to 2008 averaged to 26,000 uh, birds, which that's a substantial, substantially greater number than of uh, harvest than for Pacific Brant based on the numbers that we have, which that, that kind of surprised me. About 30% of that occurred in New Jersey, 30% in New York, 20% uh, in Virginia, and then uh, the remaining 7% in Maryland, maybe a few other places. But yeah, those are the states where that harvest occurs in the Atlantic. Pacific Brant, uh, as you talked about, certainly Alaska, Mexico, California is a uh, is another kind of big source of, of the Pacific Brant harvest there. So uh, I don't have anything here in front of me regarding harvest rates or, or survival rates for uh, for Atlantic brand. I don't know if you have any of that handy either. I don't. I, I don't think there's as uh, nearly as good information. I mean, that brand, the Pacific brand harvest rate and survival rate estimates was based on a huge data set recently published in 2017. Um, 
some work I was involved with and and getting that type of data is pretty difficult. That was very extensive data that was quite uh, detailed. Mark, one thing of note here to kind of wrap up a, a survival discussion, survival harvest discussion, uh, something that we incorporated on the previous episode with Javon Bank, the, the, where we talked about greater white-fronted geese, with uh, longevity record for Brant. It's 22 years and seven months for an Atlantic Brant and 27 years and six months for a Pacific Brant. So you get some of those those longer-lived species, uh, the uh, among the geese and yeah you can get something pretty easily in the 2025 i think jay said for greater white fronted geese the the longevity record is over 30 years i can't remember if it was 32 or 36 years but it's maybe it's 38 years but it's getting on up there it's pretty incredible some of these birds can live a long long time yeah it is and you know it's been a really um what's the word a, a really rewarding experience to get to know some of these individuals that have lived in a long time some ones we've marked um, they come back to a similar area year after year and you get to interact with them um, and get to know them. And you think about it, you know, some of these birds, so 10 years into their life may have migrated some 60,000 miles, you know, double that if they've lived 20 years and you're, you have the privilege of um, studying them. I mean, it, it, it is a privilege um, and, it, you know, you really feel obliged to um, be careful with what you're doing and try to be as respectful of, of an individual that's um, putting itself out there as much as it is. So. Absolutely. You said the word that was in my mind and that is respect. The more we know about these birds, the more that we see what they have to deal with and the more we see the amazing feats that they can complete, whether we're talking about a 3000 mile migration or a lifespan of 25 to 30 years respect is what these birds deserve and that it's also kind of behind a lot of the conservation efforts that that we do within ducks unlimited and our other partner organizations and partner agencies um you know brant kind of being where they are and uh, in terms of breeding staging wintering the type of habitats that they occupy it's not as easy to do intensive management for them as we can for some dabbling duck species and some diving duck species maybe to a lesser extent but we nevertheless have to stay in tune with the the threats that their habitats are facing and how and changing environmental conditions changing climatic conditions are affecting uh, their ecology their ability to survive and, and reproduce and so that kind of takes us to the final section here where we want to talk about concerns, conservation concerns and priorities or research concerns. What can you tell us about that when you look across the landscape for Brant? Where are our greatest our, our greatest information needs, our greatest uncertainties or conservation concerns? I think all those um, meet, I suppose, in habitat, broadly speaking. Um, our changes in our ocean habitats is occurring at alarming rates and that has effects not just on the the ocean waters themselves and the plants therein like the the eelgrass but then on the near shore waters or land uh, areas as well as salinity levels changes as flood tide frequency increases i think this is the new the next frontier for brand in general on the east coast um for atlantics development activities as well um, are something you have to consider in terms of how that's affecting near sh- near shore um, land areas and and associated habitats uh, less of a factor for brant that 
tend to straddle the, the major development in Cal, uh, California, but um, on the West Coast in general. But um, but for Atlantic, I think development activities would be as well. I'm just absolutely um, astounded that we can make the changes in ocean environments that we've have. You know, we're affecting ocean entire ocean environments. Um, and that that's a little mind-boggling um, to think about. Not only that we as humans have had that effect, but more to me is what, how do we change that? And, you know, that storm that occurred, well, the, what, the, uh, the storm in Florida this year and the one on the, the coast of the Yukon Delta were both um, the result. Ian in Florida, uh, the other one didn't have a name, but were their intensity, their severity was a part of increased ocean temperatures. Not just that they formed, but how much rain they deposited as they moved across those land masses. And um, yeah, that's pretty um, frightening at one level, but also, I don't know, inspiring or challenging maybe is the word that we need to try to do something about this. Um, so I think for Brandt, that's the big conservation challenge. And Mark, you know, I people, when we have these conversations, sometimes people will, and we talk about how things are changing, people will say, well, what's what's going to happen? What's going to be the outcome of all of this? And of course, we don't have that answer because it depends on at least a couple of things, one of which is it depends on whether we're able to do anything to uh, kind of reduce the rate of environmental change that may be occurring or that is occurring in, in, some, in a lot of places. The other is the, that it will depend on is the ability of the birds to adapt at the at a similar rate as at which the changes are occurring. I think, I think we're starting to see across the wildlife community that there are some species that are going to be capable of doing that for a number of reasons that partly we don't fully understand yet. There are other species that are perhaps more special specialized and that will be a bit more constrained, we think, in their ability to adapt at the same rate at which their environment is changing. So we don't entirely know right now. And unfortunately, that puts us in a situation of having to not entirely wait and see, but learn as we go. And it emphasizes the importance of continuing to invest in science uh, and the research behind the scientific information that we that we rely on to, to keep an eye on what the populations are doing and how they're responding to changing environments, changing conditions. Intervene and control what we can control where we can. And so that's it, – it's you don't like to feel – helpless but sometimes you um sometimes that's where you find yourself i think at least it does for me do you do, do you is that taking sort of a defeatist approach i don't um or what are your thoughts no. there uh, i i mean i feel both of those uh sides of the emotion right sometimes i just want to throw in the towel because it seems so overwhelming and most of the time i just want to continue to try to tackle it and take it on as I think most in our profession do. I mean, I'm transitioning to a new phase of how I contribute, but uh, it's no less inspiring to try to do something to help help the situation. You know, the challenge, I think, in our profession, not to get into the weeds too much, but the details is that, <clears throat> you know, we're facing problems now that require us to collaborate at levels that we never had to before. You know, if you were just managing a single, I don't know, wetland complex even or a refuge, you know, you didn't really need to work with anybody. Maybe just that refuge staff was capable of it now. But when you start thinking about managing 
ocean environments. Um, you know, there's no one group that's going to put their arms around that. And, um, you know, more, now more than ever, you know, we need to stop building silos within our profession. And within our profession um, is not just people employed in the profession. It includes hunters and conservation-minded people. I mean, we need to work together um, collectively to address these problems that are bigger than any one group. And so I think that's um, exciting to think about how we can do that. Um, And we're going to need to do it, I think, to address these problems. Mark, I think that's a great place to wrap up this episode. This has been a great conversation, a detailed conversation about one of the most intriguing species of waterfowl that we have in North America because some of their uniquenesses, their long distance uh, migrations, their reliance on a a, a narrow suite of, of foods and heavy reliance on on a few key staging areas and changes that we've seen in, in where those birds are wintering and staging and uh, maybe not necessarily staging, but wintering. They're incredibly unique for a number of reasons, and it's been a pleasure to talk with you about them. And I hope our, our listeners enjoy the conversation as much as, as much as I have. Thanks for having me. It was really fun to talk about this uh, species and this topic. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Mark Lindbergh, retired wildlife professor from the University of Alaska Fairbanks. We greatly appreciate his time and expertise. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the wonderful job that he does with these episodes and getting them out to you. And then we thank you, the listener, for your time and for spending it with us and for your support and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.